of all the songwriters that I loved when I was in college. Jim Croce was at the top of the list of anyone who knew how to take a practical matter and spin it into a powerful phrase. Uh, Jim Croce could do it. Can you imagine if you're having a tussle with your wife and maybe things aren't going the right way and you could write a song like this that Jim wrote after he had had a tussle with his wife? Every time I tried to tell you the words just came out wrong. So I'll have to say I love you with a song. He, he wrote this song to his yet unborn son. If I could save time in a bottle, the first thing that I'd like to do is to save every day till eternity passes just to spend them with you. Or maybe even more gripping is the song that he thought of while he was standing in line as a serviceman waiting to place a call to the girlfriend that had left him for another guy. And so he writes, Operator, can you help me place this call? You see the number on the matchbook is old and faded. And the song goes on to tell that he can't see it because of the tears in his eyes. Every time I think about a love that I thought would save me. But to get a little bit less serious, Jim Croce wrote two songs about the subject that I've chosen for this morning and next week. I'll be surprised if you are not familiar with them, at least those of you over 30. Uh, uh, he wrote, uh, it's bad, bad Leroy Brown, baddest man in the whole darn town, badder than old King Kong, and... <laughs> and I wondered if people would remember. <laughs> well, let's do another test here, because uh, with, with equal profundity, he turned out this one. You don't tug on Superman's cape. You don't spit into the wind. You don't pull the mask off that old Lone Ranger, and... <laughs> Laura, you're awfully enthusiastic about it. <laughs> so we remember... Guys with attitudes, uh, Mike Ditka, Mean Joe Green, Charles Barkley, Bill Romanowski and Dennis Smith were meanies on the Denver Broncos. And I certainly would not want to be on the other side of the desk of Donald Trump if he was mad at me. <laughs> and perhaps the, uh, the classic one of all would be Colonel Nathan R. Jessup of A Few Good Men if he wanted to ask me if that was clear. And I said, Crystal, oh. for the next two Sundays, and I feel honored that while Pastor Todd is gone, uh, he sent me an email and asked me to be the pinch preacher. Uh, I feel honored that I get to do this. But for the next two Sundays, I'd like to touch on the subject of Christianity with an attitude. Uh, uh, we read the, the, the text from Philippians 2 about Paul making uh, his joy complete by being like-minded, uh, ending, ending up with the, uh, the, the, the phrase in verse 5 which says, 
your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And we'll be looking at those words very carefully this morning. Would you join me for a word of prayer? For this hour, uh, for these people, uh, for the circumstances each one here faces, uh, give me the words and the attitude to make this time meaningful and worthwhile. Amen. Of all the churches that Paul was concerned about, the church of Philippi was his darling I say that because I've seen the problems that Paul goes after in all of the other churches he writes to. The, the Colossians were probably too superstitious, the Corinthians too selfish, the Romans too judgmental, the Thessalonians too lazy, the Galatians too uh, legalistic, and the Ephesians a little bit too babyish. But the Philippian church seemed to be a pretty good bunch. And I'm going to guess that if all the churches were having a potluck, he would most uh, 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 enthusiastically want to go to the Philippian church over all the others. And if you read through the book of Philippians very quickly, you'll see that he showers some glittering compliments on the Philippian church. He writes, I pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day till now. My brothers whom I long for and love. You are my joy and crown, dear friends. You sent me aid again and again. You are making progress. You encourage one another. You, you comfort one another. You spend time with one another. You are tended, tender and compassionate. What does an apostle what does a teacher, what does a preacher say to a darling church? In Philippians 2 verse 5, we see that Paul makes what I will call a deep, a daring, and perhaps the most difficult proposal of any of the proposals he made to his church. It's certainly tougher when he says, your attitude." Your attitude should be that of the same as that of Christ Jesus. Today and next week, I'd like to extract as much meaning from that statement as I possibly can. If, if this phrase were a chocolate malt, by the end of the sermon next week, we will hear the sounds sipping out the last spoonfuls of meaning of that chocolate malt from the bottom. It will gurgle and it will simmer and it will uh, uh, sputter until finally uh, you have the conclusion that we've seen about all there is to see. In this proposal, your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus. And this morning, what I would like us to look at is five timeless concerns that Paul has for this darling congregation. If they're so great, what in the world is Paul concerned about? What is wrapped up in this central passage that he wants to bring to their attention? And we'll find that these five timeless concerns go right to the heart of the mission of the church. It goes right to the heart for the reason for her existence. It lies right at the core of why they uh, are here. 
So if you follow along with me, we'll try and zip through these five concerns as efficiently as we can. First, it appears as though Paul is concerned about spirit. Uh, uh, we're looking at the word spirit now with a small s instead of a large one. He writes in verse 2, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit. Uh, in a nice way, Paul is uh, winding up and saying, Go ahead, make my joy. It's not as macho as Clint Eastwood's make my day. But now he's saying, make my joy complete. And the word spirit here is in the Greek, the word suke. It's close to our word psyche, which now throws uh, the word into uh, mumbo-jumbo land when we try to figure it out. But when we talk about the psyche now, we're talking about our thought center and our feeling center, and our behavior center. The word refers to whatever it is inside that controls our mental and physical responses. Now, I've never been able to locate my spirit, but I certainly know when I have it and when I don't. You probably know what spirit feels like too. Remember that infamous day back in January of this year, the the last Bronco game of the season. It's the playoff game where the Broncos have the Ravens under control. And then with one big throw down the sidelines, 70 make-or-break yards on a wing and a prayer, a high-arching touchdown pass that soars through that icy air over two defenders' heads and into the hands of Jacoby Jones and you could see and hear the spirit, the psyche, literally get sucked out of the city of Denver. <laughs> it happened to me. Our spirits were soaring, and then they were crushed. But I'm not satisfied with that. Let's find a more fun word picture than the... Broncos losing in the playoffs. A number of years ago, I did some consulting for Dairy Queen. And as I was their consultant, I got to visit a Dairy Queen unit every day. And uh, the franchisees, when we talked, would offer me uh, usually one of their hot eats or cool treats. And um, I would usually choose the chocolate chip Oreo blizzard. Uh, but right on the heels of that was uh, a banana split. So there it is. Uh, strawberry, vanilla, and chocolate soft serve with strawberry syrup, chocolate syrup, extra whipped cream, nuts, cherries, pineapple bits, all arranged neatly between a split banana. So, so you know what a banana split looks like after it's sat there for a while? I'll call it a, a, a mystery mix of all the ingredients. It's not red, it's not white, it's not brown, it's not chocolate, it's not vanilla, it's not strawberry, it's a, it's a mystery mix. And if we think of this word spirit, uh, the best word I can use to describe it is a mystery mix. My spirit is where my thoughts and feelings 
all the facts and fiction of life where certainty and doubt, where knowledge and belief all blend together in this thing called a mystery mix. In the spirit, I sense the zest of passion and the abhorrence of boredom. In my spirit are my perceptions and my sensations and my impressions of all the encounters I have with family, with work, with church, with friends, with books, with movies, and my play. Paul is concerned here about spirit. And the reason he's concerned about spirit is because it leads to the next major concern he has for his darling church. And the word is attitude. Let's look at the text again. Make my joy by being, now notice the word, like-minded. Then he goes on to say, having the same love, being one and spirit and purpose. And then he, in verse 5, uses the word attitude. Your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus. The word like-minded, the word purpose, the word attitude, all come from the same Greek word. That These three words seem to tumble over each other with slightly different pronunciations and nuances. But uh, they refer to the same thing. They, they refer to how this stuff in my spirit spills out into the people and the places and the things around me. Attitude now is the artist that colors and shapes and gives proportion to what we say and do and how we say and how we do it. The result is kind of like a caricature or a cartoon that displays what's going on in my spirit. So celebrities know it and companies know it and psychologists know it and coaches know it and CEOs know it. Every motivational speaker on the rubber chicken circuit knows it. My attitude determines if I will connect with my world. It determines how I connect with my world. It, to, it determines who uh, I connect with. It determines if and when I will work, how hard I will work, how well I will work, how long I will work. It even determines whether my work will succeed or fail. And I'm sure now, regardless of the content of this particular message, you're picking up my attitude and what's scary is that attitude is kind of like a dipstick that goes down into my spirit and measures the level and the quality and the viscosity of what's down inside. So you can see now that, that Paul's keeping these concerns up when he says to the church, yes, I'm concerned about your spirit and I'm concerned about your, your attitude. It's no little thing, which leads me to the third major concern that Paul has for his darling church, and we'll call it action. In verse 3, we read, do nothing, and then notice the words, out of. And then he throws at us uh, three attitudes, selfish ambition, vain conceit, and humility. 
And the picture I get here right now is that, that action is, is kind of like a big sneeze that comes out of our, our, our spirits and our attitude. Uh, uh, all of this uh, uh, spirit and attitude stuff begins to show itself in action. So now uh, attitude and spirit determines how and where I move my eyes. It determines how I hold my arms. It determines my tone of voice. It determines whether I sweat, whether I pace, whether I cough or clear my voice. It uh, has something to do with my blood pressure and heart rate. It has something to do with whether I speak slowly or fast. It has something to do with whether I'm tense or whether I'm at ease, uh, whether I'm speaking the truth or whether I'm lies, uh, speaking lies. All of this begins to stack up. And I know this because I have a two-year-old grandson who's an absolute brilliant analyst of his grandfather. <laughs> it is amazing that my two-year-old boy can uh, listen to me talk and he can read me in an instant. He can see the spirit that's bubbling up inside through my attitude, and he can decide whether he's going to take me seriously or not. <laughs> Maddening, isn't it? This leads us to the fourth major concern that Paul gives to his darling church. He's concerned about spirit. He's concerned about attitude. He's concerned about action. But now this plays right to the fourth one, and that's the biggie. He's concerned about relationships because now these three play into the fourth. And in this small passage, you're going to find that Paul runs, uh, he runs the range of relationships here. It's amazing how perceptive he is at the kind of relationships he talks about. For example, we find that he talks about exploitive relationships here. In verse 3, we read the words, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Selfish ambition breeds exploitive relationships. And my, how are we are vulnerable to exploiters. Exploiters will use women. They will use children, they will use elderly people, they will use charitable givers, they will use employees, they will use land, they will use grief, they will use anything to get ahead. It's so sad to hear about the tornadoes that are going on in Oklahoma right now and realize that there are people who will loot the homes of people whose homes have been destroyed by the wind. Movies love exploiters. Meryl Streep plays a caustic, heartless ice queen in the movie The Devil Wears Prada. She sinks her corporate fangs into idealistic journalism graduate Anne Hathaway, and frame by frame, Miranda Priestly sucks every ounce of human decency out of her to shape her into a shark that consumes everyone and everything in its path. Marlon Brando uh, plays the godfather, and the Don becomes so consumed with wiping out his enemies, and even his closest allies close counsel him to stop. 
We all know J.R. Ewing of Dallas fame and realize that after countless episodes of trickery and cheating and manipulation, he's a selfish exploiter even though he ends up to be a little bit lovable. And then, and then we have that old movie uh, about Michael Getgo, uh, Wall Street, where uh, Michael Douglas pays the fictional character uh, in the uh, 1987 film, and he comes out with that famous, quote, greed is good. There's no doubt. We all know who the exploiters are, and we know when we have an exploiter in our life, which leads us to another relationship that Paul digs into in this verse. He also says, do nothing out of vain conceit. So let's call that next relationship a casual relationship. Those relationships now that seem to come out of a spirit and an attitude of conceit. Casual relationships sail on benefits. Casual relationships look everywhere for coupons and discounts and free offers. A casual relationship says to a person, a place or a thing, meet my standards, blow me away, be wonderful, impress me, be the best and I'll pick you. Make the right offer. Do the right thing. Be better. And if you are the best, we've got something. Otherwise, I'll move on. And in the hours and hours and hours of marriage counseling that I've had the opportunity to do, I get sick to my stomach when I see a casual relationship coming into a relationship with a husband and wife. Vain conceit, which simply says, you are there to satisfy me, and if you do it, this relationship continues. If you don't, it's over. The ad men love it. Burger King says, have it your way. We do it all for you. Think what we can do for you. We love to see you smile. Even churches get in the act. Discover the champion in you. Feel the difference. Free coffee, everlasting life. Membership has its privileges. Join the Church of the Month Club. Wow. Another relationship comes out of this text. Let's call it a responsible relationship. In verse 4, he writes, Each of you should look only, not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. At least uh, the quality of these relationships are being elevated as he talks about them. In this case now he's talking about a relationship in which the interests between the two parties are under consideration. So now when we get into business where I spend my week, it's a week of quid pro quo. It's a week of this for that. It's a week of you scratch my back and I'll scratch your back. It's a week of making deals. And if you get into the world that I see of lawyers and accountants and CEOs, CEOs and CFOs, suddenly you're swept up in the anxiety of whether now I'm in a good deal and whether I can engineer it and craft it and maintain it and protect it. Deal making. And I've got to be careful here because... Probably the ultimate therapy and pastime goes into that as well, which is called shopping. And I know a lot of you like to do that. So we have now 
We have exploitive relationships and we have casual relationships. And uh, at least on the positive side now is a responsible relationship. And then all of a sudden, Paul, right in the middle of this, throws down the deepest, most difficult and daring proposal you'll ever see in Christianity. Call it a servant relationship. In which in verse 5 he says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And in verse 7 he says, he made himself nothing and he took on the nature of a servant. And then the book of Luke illustrates it. In Luke 6 we read, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. If you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. And then here it comes. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. And therein is the definition of a servant. A servant is one who loves and cares without expectation. Well, that leads us to the fifth major concern that Paul has for his darling church. Spirit breeds attitude. Attitude breeds actions. Action breeds relationships. Relationships breed significance. Have you ever had an exploiter in your life? It came to the point in my life years ago where I had to decide that I was going to take every exploiter that was in my life and cut them out because they had sucked me dry. You ever get weary of the please everyone routine that casual relationships suggest? You ever worry that you're not smart enough to engineer and manage the deals that responsible relationships require? Then perhaps you will appreciate how lovely, how nourishing, how powerful a servant relationship is. And to have servants in your life and to have those people around you that for some remarkable reason love you without expectation. I have servant relationships in my life. My mom was one. Oh, what a darling she was. And now as I look back, I remember time and time again when she loved me and I did not return it. But it came there over and over and over again. My wife is a servant. She knows how to find those times and those places and those things where she is able to love without expecting something, something in return. I have a big brother who's a servant. I had a friend in college who saw me floundering and spent hours and hours and hours and hours with me teaching me how to study and how to think. And I had a seminary present who from the age of eight on would never let go of my life. To those here, all of you, there are many who know how to give and how to love and how to serve without expectation. 
you are significant people because a great church is made of servants. The goal of teaching is to create servants. The goal of prayer is to create servants. The will of God is to be a servant. The measure of spirituality is to be a servant. Who are the spiritual but the servants? What is the mark of Christian character? It is servanthood. And our text supports now the significance that comes from those acts and encounters with servanthood. But love your enemies, Luke writes. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. And then your reward will be great. But even more profound than that is the writings of Paul now in Philippians 2 in which now he writes of Christ, the one who takes on the servant relationship. And he says, therefore God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ his Lord. Now that's the significance that comes from a servant relationship. I was surprised to learn that all the aspen trees in our front yard are connected with all the aspen trees in our front our neighbor's front yard. They're all part of the same root system. And I suddenly begin to realize that like those connections of root systems, that Paul is now looking at this Philippian church and realizing that there is a not-so-subtle connection between the spirit moving to attitude, moving to action, moving to relationships, right on to significance. And what an astounding thing that is to realize I realized it particularly one day when I was serving a church up in Boulder, Colorado. It's on Table Mesa in Boulder, and the church really wasn't going anywhere. And at the same time, the, the Table Mesa community was struggling with the post office moving out of the strip center down below, and they were furious and heartbroken that the post office would be leaving. And I said to my board one day, how would the community feel if our church burned down or we left? Would they be brokenhearted? Would they really, really be concerned about the loss of the significance of a church? So I went to the neighborhood association meeting and they gave me about five minutes as the pastor there to say to them, look, we're a neighborhood church. What is the thing we could do most to be of value to you in the community? And if it's all right, I'll come back to you in a month and you can tell me. A month later, I came back to the meeting and they said, Reverend McDonald, uh, we've got an answer to your question. And I said, what's the answer to my question? And they said, tear down the church and make it a park. And I was shocked at the possibility that the church in the midst of all its buildings and all its budget and every, all, all the hubbub that goes around is that it could be doing all this stuff and really have no significance at all. 
So we sang this morning, through you, through you, through you, through you. And, and we begin to realize now that when we talk about spirit and attitude and action and relationships and significance, there's another connection here that grows out of it all. And Paul writes about it in verse 1 where he says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. That's core to this whole issue now of significance, moving back through relationships, moving back through action, and moving back through attitude right to spirit. Is there something now of our unification with Christ that affects our spirit and runs right through our significance? One of the more pleasant responsibilities I had in the corporate world was the opportunity to spend other people's money. I used to spend $400,000 a year for a corporation, and most of it was spent with KOA radio. So the KOA radio people were very, very interested in me. One of the, the people at KOA was named Richard, and every year Richard would call me, and he would say, Dave, <clears throat> it's time again. You want to get on the... Denver Bronco uh, plane and fly with the team to an away game. So visiting teams uh, have to be at an away game 24 hours uh, before uh, uh, the game. So now uh, about 30 hours before game time, I show up at uh, 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 the hangar and my instructions are be on time, wear a coat and a tie, keep quiet, and sit where they tell you. Okay. So soon I'm on a plane with Dan Reeves and John Elway and Clarence Kay and Carl Mecklenburg and Gary Kubiak and Dennis Smith and all the rest of the team and they're all dressed in $5,000 suits and Rolex watches and enough bling to supply the Denver pawn traps for the next 10 years. Okay. And we fly to Kansas City and then the buses take us to a hotel downtown and I have to confess to you, uh, it was a kick to be on that plane and on that bus with the team. And uh, every, everyone around us knew who we were. And I had my best suit on. And it, it didn't take about uh, a minute when now here I'm walking off the bus. John Elway is two people in front of me and John, Dan Weaves is behind me. And we walk into the hotel and very quickly... Two six-year-old girls run up to me and ask for my autograph. <laughs> and, and then their father walked up 30 seconds later and said, who are you? <laughs> it's hard to mumble that I'm a marketing officer of a Denver corporation and make it sound like I'm a member of a football team. Uh, at the end of the game, Richard said to me, Come along with me. I'm going to show you what you pay for. So we worked our way out of the box seats, down the ramps, and through the car to a set of double doors. Uh, and there we saw a sign that said, Authorized Personnel Only. And there were two armed guards there guarding the door. And all Richard had to do was show them his ID. And then down the corridor uh, and through another set of doors, and he waves his ID again. And finally, there I am in the Broncos locker room just 15 minutes after the game. 
the attention, the dinners, the fans. I even sat next to that tornado set, tornado set on, the, on, the, uh, on the bus, and I rode in the elevator with John Elway. Uh, and did that feed the monkey of conceit? Five hours after the game, I was back in Denver, and I suddenly realized that without Richard... I could not get into that stadium. I could not even park my car. I could not get to the door. I certainly could not get into the locker room without my connection to him. And our worship this morning and our songs, particularly the words, through you, we suddenly get a solid, solid teaching that it's with our creator and our preserver and our redeemer and our lover to whom we are connected as Christians. And that connection gives us a renewed spirit and a renewed attitude and a renewed action and renewed relationships and renewed significance. And Paul, to his darling churches, said, come on, get connected and let it show. Well, in closing, I dared to call on the voices of 10,000 pipes to embrace our closing prayer. And they sing the most familiar love theme that is ever written because the one to whom we are connected loves us more than tongue can tell. Just to remind us that with the deep lessons of attitude come deep affirmations of love. A servant kind of love and so on behalf of the pastors of West Bulls, I offer this benediction. Lord, we confess what a mix of stuff there is in our spirits. Like weeds, like flowers, our spirit's mysteries show themselves in such powerful ways. Attitudes work. They protect the spirit. They, they mask disappointment and resignation. Our doubt and dogmatism. Our emptiness and self-indulgence. Our attitudes hide our loneliness and indifference our anxiety and busyness, our sadness and anger. They bury our insecurity and conceit, our desire and control, and our disappointment and retreat. Attitude goes everywhere. It greets everyone, it ignores no one. So you invite us to a divine connection. You are Lord of Spirit, Lord of attitude, Lord of action, Lord of relationships and significance. Indeed, you are Lord of the encounters and connections that make up our lives. So we worship you. Bless us. Keep us and bring us together again soon.
Amen and have a good week.